Chapter Fourteen of Quicksand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Quicksand by Nella Larson. Chapter Fourteen. The young officer had been right in his surmise. Axel Olsen was going to paint Helga Crane. Not only was he going to paint her, but he was to accompany her and her aunt on their shopping expedition. Aunt Katrina was frankly elated. Uncle Poole was also visibly pleased. Evidently they were not above kowtowing to a lion. Helga's own feelings were mixed. She was amused, grateful, and vexed. It had all been decided and arranged without her, and also she was a little afraid of Olsen. His stupendous arrogance awed her. The day was an exciting, not easily to be forgotten one. Definitely, too, it conveyed to Helga her exact status in her new environment, a decoration, a curio, a peacock. Their progress through the shops was an event, an event for Copenhagen as well as for Helga Crane. Her dark, alien appearance was to most people an astonishment. Some stared surreptitiously, some openly, and some stopped dead in front of her in order more fully to profit by their stares. Den Sort dropped freely, audibly, from many lips. The time came when she grew used to the stares of the population, and the time came when the population of Copenhagen grew used to her outlandish presence and ceased to stare. But at the end of that first day it was with thankfulness that she returned to the sheltering walls of the house on Maria Kirkeblad's. They were followed by numerous packages, whose contents all had been selected or suggested by Olsen and paid for by Aunt Katrina. Helga had only to wear them. When they were opened and the things spread out upon the sedate furnishings of her chamber, they made a rather startling array. It was almost in a mood of rebellion that Helga faced the fantastic collection of garments incongruously laid out in the quaint, stiff, pale old room. There were batik dresses in which mingled indigo, orange, green, vermilion, and black, dresses of velvet and chiffon and screaming colors, blood-red, sulphur-yellow, sea-green, and one black-and-white thing in striking combination. There was a black manila shawl strewn with great scarlet and lemon flowers, a leopard-skin coat, a glittering opera cape. There were turban-like hats of metallic silks, feathers and furs, strange jewellery, enamelled or set with odd semi-precious stones, a nauseous eastern perfume, shoes with dangerously high heels. Gradually Helga's perturbation subsided in the unusual pleasure of having so many new and expensive clothes at one time. She began to feel a little excited, incited. Incited. That was it, the guiding principle of her life in Copenhagen. She was incited to make an impression, a voluptuous impression. She was incited to inflame attention and admiration. She was dressed for it, subtly schooled for it. And after a little while she gave herself up wholly to the fascinating business of being seen, gaped at, desired. Against the solid background of Herdal's wealth and generosity she submitted to her aunt's arrangement of her life to one end, the amusing one of being noticed and flattered. Intentionally she kept to the slow, faltering Danish. It was, she decided, more attractive than a nearer perfection. She grew used to the extravagant things with which Aunt Katrina chose to dress her. 
She managed, too, to retain that air of remoteness which had been in America so disastrous to her friendships. Here in Copenhagen it was merely a little mysterious, and added another clinging wisp of charm. Helga Crane's new existence was intensely pleasant to her. It gratified her augmented sense of self-importance. And it suited her. She had to admit that the Danes had the right idea. To each his own milieu. Enhance what was already in one's possession. In America Negroes sometimes talked loudly of this, but in their hearts they repudiated it. In their lives, too. They didn't want to be like themselves. What they wanted, asked for, begged for, was to be like their white overlords. They were ashamed to be Negroes, but not ashamed to beg to be something else, something inferior, not quite genuine. Too bad. Helga Crane didn't, however, think often of America, excepting an unfavorable contrast to Denmark, for she had resolved never to return to the existence of ignominy which the new world of opportunity and promise forced upon Negroes. How stupid she had been ever to have thought that she could marry, and perhaps have children in a land where every dark child was handicapped at the start by the shroud of colour! She saw, suddenly, the giving birth to little helpless unprotesting negro children as a sin, an unforgivable outrage. More black folk to suffer indignities, more dark bodies for mobs to lynch. No, Helga Crane didn't think often of America. It was too humiliating too disturbing. And she wanted to be left to the peace which had come to her. Her mental difficulties and questionings had become simplified. She now believed sincerely that there was a law of compensation, and that sometimes it worked. For all those early desolate years she now felt recompensed. She recalled a line that had impressed her in her lonely school-days, the far-off interest of tears. To her, Helga Crane, it had come at last and she meant to cling to it. So she turned her back on painful America, resolutely shutting out the griefs, the humiliations, the frustrations, which she had endured there. Her mind was occupied with other and nearer things. The charm of the old city itself, with its odd architectural mixture of medievalism and modernity, and the general air of well-being which pervaded it, impressed her. Even in the so-called poor sections, there was none of that untidiness and squalor which she remembered as the accompaniment of poverty in Chicago, New York, and the southern cities of America. Here the doorsteps were always white from constant scrubbings, the women neat, and the children washed and provided with whole clothing. Here were no tatters and rags, no beggars. But then begging, she learned, was an offence punishable by law. Indeed, it was unnecessary in a country where everyone considered it a duty somehow to support himself and his family by honest work. Or, if misfortune and illness came upon one, everyone else, including the State, felt bound to give assistance, a lift on the road to the regaining of independence. After the initial shyness and consternation at the sensation caused by her strange presence had worn off, Helga spent long hours driving or walking about the city, at first in the protecting company of Uncle Poole or Aunt Katrina or both, or sometimes Axel Olsen. But later, when she had become a little familiar with the city, and its inhabitants a little used to her, and when she had learned to cross the streets in safety, dodging successfully the innumerable bicycles like a true Copenhagener, she went often alone, loitering on the long bridge which spanned the placid lakes, 
or watching the pageant of the blue-clad, sprucely-tailored soldiers in the daily parade at Amalienborg Palace, or in the historic vicinity of the long, low-lying exchange. A picturesque structure in picturesque surroundings, skirting, as it did, the great canal, which was always alive with many small boats, flying broad white sails, and pressing close on the huge ruined pile of the palace of Christiansborg. There was also the Gamostrand, the congregating place of the vendors of fish, where daily was enacted a spirited and interesting scene between sellers and buyers, and where Helga's appearance always roused lively and audible but friendly interest, long after she became in other parts of the city an accepted curiosity. Here it was that one day an old countrywoman asked her to what manner of mankind she belonged, and at Helga's replying, I'm a negro, had become indignant, retorting angrily that, just because she was old and a countrywoman, she could not be so easily fooled, for she knew as well as everyone else that negroes were black and had woolly hair. Against all this walking the dolls had at first uttered mild protest. "'But, Aunt, dear, I have to walk or I'll get fat,' Helga asserted. "'I've never, never in all my life eaten so much.' For the accepted style of entertainment in Copenhagen seemed to be a round of dinner-parties, at which it was customary for the hostess to tax the full capacity not only of her dining-room but of her guests as well. Helga enjoyed these dinner-parties, as they were usually spirited affairs, the conversation brilliant and witty, often in several languages, and always she came in for a goodly measure of flattering attention and admiration. There were, too, the popular afternoon gatherings for the express purpose of drinking coffee together, where between much talk, interesting talk, one sipped the strong and steaming beverage from exquisite cups fashioned of royal Danish porcelain, and partook of an infinite variety of rich cakes and smorbrod. This smorbrod, dainty sandwiches of an endless and tempting array, was distinctly a Danish institution. Often Helga wondered just how many of these delicious sandwiches she had consumed since setting foot on Denmark's soil. Always, wherever food was served, appeared the inevitable smorbrod, in the home of the dolls, in every other home that she visited, in hotels, in restaurants. At first she had missed a little dancing, for though excellent dancers, the Danes seemed not to care a great deal for that pastime, which so delightfully combines exercise and pleasure. But in the winter there was skating, solitary or in gay groups. Helga liked this sport, though she was not very good at it. There were, however, always plenty of efficient and willing men to instruct and guide her over the glittering ice. One could, too, wear such attractive skating things. But mostly it was with Axel Olsen that her thoughts were occupied. Brilliant, bored, elegant, urbane, cynical, worldly, he was a type entirely new to Helga Crane familiar only, and that but little, with the restricted society of American negroes. She was aware, too, that this amusing, if conceited, man was interested in her. They were, because he was painting her, much together. Helga spent long mornings in the eccentric studio opposite the Folks Museum, and Olsen came often to the doll home, where, as Helga and the man himself knew, he was something more than welcome. But in spite of his expressed interest and even delight in her exotic appearance, in spite of his constant attendance upon her, he gave no sign of the more personal kind of concern, which, encouraged by Aunt Katrina's mild insinuations and Uncle Poole's subtle questionings, she had tried to secure. Was it, she wondered, 
race that kept him silent, held him back. Helga Crane frowned on this thought, putting it furiously from her, because it disturbed her sense of security and permanence in her new life, pricked her self-assurance. Nevertheless, she was startled when on a pleasant afternoon while drinking coffee in the Hotel Vivoli, Aunt Katrina mentioned almost casually the desirability of Helga's making a good marriage. "'Marriage, Aunt dear?' "'Marriage,' firmly repeated her aunt, helping herself to another anchovy and olive sandwich. "'You are,' she pointed out, twenty-five. "'Oh, aunt, I couldn't. I mean, there's nobody here for me to marry.' In spite of herself and her desire not to be, Helga was shocked. "'Nobody?' There was, Fru Dahl asserted, Captain Frederick Skargard, and very handsome he was, too, and he would have money. And there was Herr Hans Tietgen, not so handsome, of course, but clever and a good businessman. He, too, would be rich, very rich, some day. And there was Herr Karl Petersen, who had a good berth with the Landsman's Bank, and considerable shares in the prosperous cement factory at Alborg. There was, too, Christian Lend, the young owner of the new Odin Theatre. Any of these Helga might marry, was Aunt Katrina's opinion. And, she added, others. Or maybe Helga herself had some ideas. Helga had. She didn't, she responded, believe in mixed marriages. Between races, you know. They brought only trouble to the children, as she herself knew but too well from bitter experience. Fru Dahl thoughtfully lit a cigarette. Eventually, after a satisfactory glow had manifested itself, she announced, "'Because your mother was a fool. Yes, she was. If she'd come home after she married, or after you were born, or even after your father—er—went uh, off like that, it would have been different. If even she'd left you when she was here. But why in the world she should have married again, and a person like that, I can't see. She wanted to keep you, she insisted on it, even over his protest, I think. She loved you so much, she said. And so she made you unhappy. Mothers, I suppose, are like that. Selfish. And Karen was always stupid. If you've got any brains at all, they came from your father." Into this Helga would not enter. Because of its obvious partial truths, she felt the need for disguising caution. With a detachment that amazed herself, she asked if Aunt Katrina didn't think really that miscegenation was wrong, in fact as well as principle. "'Don't,' was her aunt's reply. "'Be a fool too, Helga. We don't think of those things here. Not in connection with individuals, at least." And almost immediately she inquired, "'Did you give Herr Olsen my message about dinner tonight?' "'Yes, aunt.' Helga was cross and trying not to show it. "'He's coming?' "'Yes, aunt,' with precise politeness. "'What about him?' "'I don't know. What about him?' "'He likes you?' "'I don't know. How can I tell that?' Helga asked with irritating reserve, her concentrated attention on the selection of a sandwich. She had a feeling of nakedness, outrage. Now Fru Dahl was annoyed and showed it. "'What nonsense! Of course you know, any girl does!' And her satin-covered foot tapped, a little impatiently, the old tiled floor. "'Really, I don't know, aunt,' Helga responded in a strange voice, a strange manner, coldly formal, levelly courteous. Then, suddenly contrite, she added, "'Honestly, I don't. I can't tell a thing about him,' and fell into a little silence. 
"'Not a thing,' she repeated. But the phrase, though audible, was addressed to no one—to herself. She looked out into the amazing orderliness of the street. Instinctively she wanted to combat this searching into the one thing which, here, surrounded by all other things which for so long she had so positively wanted, made her a little afraid. Started vague premonitions. Fru Dahl regarded her intently. It would be, she remarked, with a return of her outward casualness, by far the best of all possibilities, particularly desirable. She touched Helga's hand with her fingers in a little affectionate gesture very lightly. Helga Crane didn't immediately reply. There was, she knew, so much reason from one viewpoint in her aunt's statement. She could only acknowledge it. "'I know that,' she told her finally. Inwardly she was admiring the cool, easy way in which Aunt Katrina had brushed aside the momentary acid-note of the conversation and resumed her customary pitch. It took, Helga thought, a great deal of security—balance. Yes, she was saying, while leisurely lighting another of those long, thin, brown cigarettes which Helga knew from distressing experience to be incredibly nasty-tasting. It would be the ideal thing for you, Helga. She gazed penetratingly into the masked face of her niece, and nodded as though satisfied with what she saw there. And you, of course, realize that you are a very charming and beautiful girl. Intelligent, too. If you put your mind to it, there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't— Abruptly she stopped, leaving her implication at once suspended and clear. Behind her there were footsteps. A small gloved hand appeared on her shoulder. In the short moment before turning to greet Fru Fisher, she said quietly, meaningly, "'Or else stop wasting your time, Helga.' Helga Crane said, "'Ah, Fru Fisher, it's good to see you.' She meant it. Her whole body was tense with suppressed indignation burning inside like the confined fire of a hot furnace. She was so harassed that she smiled in self-protection. And suddenly she was oddly cold. An intimation of things distant, but none the less disturbing, oppressed her with a faintly sick feeling. Like a heavy weight, a stone weight, just where, she knew, was her stomach. Fru Fisher was late, as usual. She apologized profusely. Also, as usual. And yes, she would have some coffee, and some s'morebrod, though she must say that the coffee here at the Vivoli was atrocious, simply atrocious. I don't see how you stand it. And the place was getting so common, always so many Bolsheviks and Japs and things. And she didn't—begging your pardon, Helga—like that hideous American music they were forever playing, even if it was considered very smart. Give me, she said the good old-fashioned Danish melodies of Gada and Heise. Which reminds me, Herr Olsen says that Nielsen's Helios is being performed with great success just now in England. But I suppose you know all about it, Helga. He's already told you. What?" This last was accompanied with an arch and insinuating smile. A shrug moved Helga Crane's shoulders. Strange, she'd never noticed before what a positively disagreeable woman Fru Fisher was. Stupid, too. End of chapter 14